The reverse happens as well, doesn't it? Sometimes uh, people discover that what they thought was just a piece of junk up in the attic turns out to be uh, a priceless treasure. Uh, I love the story of the man who, um, who loved old books. And uh, he, uh, he met a man who told him that he'd just thrown out an old Bible uh, from the attic. I couldn't read it, the man said. Uh, somebody named Guten something had printed it. <laughs> Not Gutenberg, said the book lover. Do you know, don't you realize that that Bible is one of the first books that was ever printed? A copy of, of, of that sold for over $2 million. Oh, the man said, mine wouldn't have been worth anything. Some fellow called Martin Luther had scribbled all over it in German. <laughs> see, we, we don't always see the value of things, do we? Our, our culture places a very high price tag on things that are really worthless and throws away things that are really valuable. Isn't that right? And, and here in this pair of parables, these back-to-back -back parables, Jesus shows us what is really valuable. He shows us the supreme value of his kingdom, of belonging to him and being in his kingdom. And he describes it to, for us in, in, these, in, 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 in two different kind of ways. He describes it for us in terms of a man who finds treasure hidden in a field and a man who finds an immensely valuable pearl, a pearl of great price. And Again, we have two parables, side by side, making much the same point, but not quite. And what is that point? That God wants me to be rich? No. That it's okay to spend my life looking for hidden treasure? No. That it's ethically okay to buy someone else's land knowing full well that something valuable is buried there? No. That it's okay to, okay to wear pearls to church? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> maybe it is, maybe it's not. But that's not what this parable is about. Both these parables really make the same point. That the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, it's worth sacrificing everything for. In, in, in the words of, of that missionary martyr, Jim Elliot, those well-known words, Jim Elliot, who lost his life in Ecuador in the middle of the... 20th century, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the message of these two parables. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. This world and everything in it <coughs> is passing away. And we're passing away with it as well. And you're not a fool if you give up what you cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. That's the message. And I've got uh, three observations to make uh, from these two parables this morning. First one is this. Both these men discover a great, they make a great discovery, don't they? Uh, the farm laborer who stumbles on some buried treasure in a field. He wasn't actually looking for it. He wasn't searching for treasure. He's not one of those eccentrics on the beach with a metal detector looking for lost coins. Sorry if I've, in, if I've uh, offended anybody here who's into that sort of thing. He's not Indiana Jones. He's not looking for, 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 for anything, really. He's just going about his daily work. He's a simple farm laborer, working on the land, digging in a field. And, and suddenly, quite unexpectedly, he makes this amazing discovery. 
See, in, in those days, uh, before the Commonwealth Bank or ANZ or safety deposit boxes or anything like that, or internet banking, <laughs> the best way to keep your valuables safe was to bury them in the ground. If, if you uh, suddenly had to flee your home because of invasion or some kind of trouble, uh, you, you could come back at a, at a future time and, and dig it up again, as long as you could remember where you put it. And, and that's the story here. That's the background to this story. This is buried treasure. He's just uh, digging in a field one day. Uh, that's his job. That's what he does. And uh, his spade strikes something solid. And he can't believe his good fortune. He struck gold. It's what we all dream of, isn't it? Having that... No, I shouldn't say that. Having that ticket in the lottery, but we don't do that, do we? <laughs> but we all, you know, we all dream about striking it rich, and it's a dream come true for this man. Suddenly, unexpectedly. And, and the merchant, the, the dealer in precious stones, who, whose business it was to buy and sell them, he finally finds what he's been looking for all his life. The pearl of great price. He, he always knew that it was there. He always knew that it existed, and now he's found it. But it's far too valuable for him just to add it to his collection. He's going he's to have to sell his whole collection in order to purchase this one priceless pearl. You see, both these men, in, in different ways, make an amazing discovery, and that's my first point by way of application this morning. Uh, there's a treasure to be found in Jesus. Do you realize that? That there are riches in Christ which can, cannot be found anywhere else. Think about it for a moment. Pardon for sin. Peace with God. Power to live. Power to live by. The very power of God, the Holy Spirit living in you. Protection from the evil one. The presence of God in your life. Purpose and meaning to your existence. All that and much more is in, is in Christ. Have you discovered that? Jesus is telling us, he's speaking to us here of, of immense riches. Riches untold. For, for you know the grace, Paul says in Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what grace means. It's, it's God's generosity to us. It's God's generosity to those who deserve nothing but his angry punishment because of their sin. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says to the Corinthians, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. There it, see, that's the buried treasure, isn't it? The world looks at the, at, at the, at the cross of Christ. It doesn't see anything there to, to attract it. it. It's buried there, isn't it? This treasure. That through his poverty, you might become rich. That's the gospel. That's the pearl of great price. H have you discovered that, my friends? Have you, have you seen who Jesus really is? Have you just begun to appreciate the depths that he has gone to for you in order 
to put you right with God? Have you begun to, to appreciate what He has done for you on the cross? See, what is this treasure? Is to have Jesus in your life as your King and Savior. Paul discovered that on the Damascus Road, didn't he? He wasn't, he wasn't looking for the kingdom. He stumbled across it. He didn't see any beauty in Jesus to desire him. He didn't put any value on Jesus. The reason he was coming down to, D to Damascus was to try to stamp out this fledgling movement, this Christianity. He was coming down, breathing out threatenings and slaughters, we're told, against the people of God. He didn't see any value in Jesus. He didn't, see, he didn't put any worth on him. He didn't see any beauty in Jesus. And yet on that day, on the road to Damascus, he made a great discovery. He describes it for us in Philippians chapter 3. He gives us his testimony there. He does that in a number of places. But here in Philippians chapter 3, he, he describes what it was like for him, thinking back to that day on the road to Damascus, speaking in the past tense. This is what he says, Whatever gain I had... And boy, he had a lot going for him, didn't he? He was, a, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. He, he was uh, an academic. He studied under Gamaliel. He, he, he had a lot going for him. But he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But then, if you, if you look these verses up in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, mid-sentence, he... Uh, he switches to the present tense. Mid-sentence. He said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. That's the past tense. But then he says, indeed, I count everything as loss. Now he's talking about 30 years later. <laughs> Is Jesus worth it? Yes, says Paul, 30 years on. I don't know how long you've been a Christian. I want to ask you, is Jesus more precious to you now than the day when you first believed? Or have you, have you lost your first love? 30 years on, Paul can say, I've lost everything for him, but it was worth it. I count everything as loss, he says, present tense. Today, 30 years after becoming a Christian on the Damascus Road, Today, he says, I, I, present tense, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. It's what Thomas Chalmers calls the uh, expulsive power of a new affection. That's what it means to become a Christian. You know what he means by that, of course, don't you? It's... Uh, the expulsive power of a new affection. It's a famous sermon by Thomas Chalmers, one of the great Scottish Presbyterian leaders. You know what it is, is the expulsive power of a new affection? It's like when your teenage son discovers girls for the first time. His, um, you know, his behavior changes quite dramatically. In, instead of the footy, he's now going shopping with her. You could never get him into the bathroom before, now you can't get him out. What's happened? It's the expulsive power of a new affection. Do you see? A new love has come into his life. And that's what it means to become a Christian. That's how you enter the kingdom. <clears throat> you fall in love with Jesus. You, 
you see his worth. I want to ask you, my friends, has that happened for you? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you fall in love with someone? You get to know them, don't you? How do you get to know Jesus? You have to read the Gospels. Perhaps you've made your New Year's resolution again this year, that you're going to read through the Bible. Well, don't think of it like that. I've got to get through the Bible. I've got to get through Leviticus. <laughs> I've got to start in Genesis and get right through to Revelation. And it becomes a, a chore. It becomes something kind of weighing down on you like a heavy burden. No, my friends, the reason we read the Bible is to fall in love with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So we get fascinated with him and, and entranced by him. And we see that, that the whole Bible is about him. And we see aspects of his character, and, and uh, uh, even in the Old Testament. Has that happened to you? Is that happening to you as you read your Bible? You fall in love with Jesus. You see his worth. It's all about Jesus being a Christian. And that leads into my, my second observation. You see, this amazing discovery gives rise to an overwhelming desire. <clears throat> These two men are so different uh, in, in many ways. Um, the farm laborer and the pearl merchant. They come from different strata of society. They wouldn't normally have anything to do with one another. Pearl merchants don't go fossicking in fields for precious pearls. And plowmen don't usually go to the great commercial centers of the world in search of uh, treasure. They live in different worlds, these two men. But they have this in common, don't they? They both sold everything they had to get their hands on this treasure. There's no mixed portfolio here. They put all their eggs into this one basket. See what it says there in, in verse 45 about the worker? In his joy, he goes and sells everything, everything he has and, and buys that field. That's a bit sneaky, isn't it, really? When you think about it, I mean, would you do that? If you stumbled across a fortune in your neighbor's backyard, would you, would you go and buy his house without telling him? Isn't that a bit dishonest? Well, no, it's not really, because if the treasure belonged to that man, if he'd buried it in the garden, in the backyard, I'm sure he would have dug it up before he sold the house, don't you think? No, no, this is, this is just buried treasure. It's, nobody knew it was there. And, and, and according to Jewish law, it, it's finders keepers. <laughs> we say possession is nine-tenths of the law. In first century Israel, it was ten-tenths. And, and so he sold everything he had to buy the field and claim the treasure. He wasn't doing anything dishonest. This was just, he was able to do this. He must have this treasure at all costs, you see. And then there's the pearl merchant, you know, the trader in precious stones. Look what it says about him in verse 46. When he found this priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, just picture that. I, I wonder what his wife and family thought, you know, when he, uh, when he came home that weekend. Well, and what did the neighbors make of this, you know, uh, when he came home to his nice home in the suburbs that weekend? The next day, there's a, a for sale sign outside the house. And then he starts emptying the contents of his home out onto the front lawn. And, uh, and there's his home entertainment system and that massive big screen TV that he only put in last week. It's out there on the nature strip. 
And it's not just a car boot sale that he's having. The car's for sale as well. And uh, it's not just a garage sale. The garage is actually for sale, and so is the house. The house is on the market now, and he's off to Bible college. What, what did his friends make of that, do you think? What did, the, what did the neighbors think of that? And that's how it is when you discover who Jesus really is. And what he's done for you. You, you, you have to reevaluate your priorities. You have to reevaluate everything. You must have him at all costs. It becomes a consuming passion. It, it takes over. It's all encompassing. No one can become a Christian without that. Jesus said, Ask and keep on asking, and you will receive. Seek and keep on seeking and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking, and the door will be open unto you. You see, you, you, can't, you don't become a Christian just by putting up your hand in a meeting, or signing a, a decision card, or something like that. It's this all-consuming, I must have Jesus. That's how it was for me. I, I, can't, I think I'm a mixture of both these guys, really. I, I was converted at the age of 17 in, in church. I didn't want to be there. I didn't believe in God. I thought I was an atheist. I persuaded myself that there was no God. And then just suddenly, I just stumbled across this treasure. The preacher said something about being born again, and God used that, that verse from John 3 uh, to show me that he existed, that he really was there, that I could have a relationship with him. And boy, I wanted that. I needed that. I stumbled across that. He, God opened his word to me and I realized I must have Jesus. And I went out of that meeting that night and I started to seek him with all my heart, praying to him to give me this new birth, whatever it was. My, my friends, no one becomes a Christian without that. And, and we've all got different stories to tell. We've all got different testimonies. Some will find the kingdom by chance. Some after a long search, but every one of us has a different story to tell. And that's significant because you, you notice about these two men that their, although their circumstances are quite different. One man is poor, the other is rich. One man is searching, the other is not. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's open to all, whether you're rich or poor or in between, whether you're a laborer or a businessman whether you stumble across the gospel or you've been searching for it all your life, you found Jesus to be the pearl of great price. And you must have him in your life. You must have him to be your Lord and Savior. Nothing else matters as much as that. C.S. Lewis has said uh, famously, Jesus is either of all importance or of no importance. One thing he cannot be is relatively important. Do you follow the logic of that? If Jesus is your everything, he can't be your something, can he? If Jesus is of ultimate value, he can't be of some value to you. So let me ask you, what is Jesus worth to you? What is Jesus to you? Is he a get-out-of-jail-free card? Is that how you see him? Is that, how you, is that why you're a Christian? Out of fear? What is Jesus? Is he just a, kind of like a an insurance policy against hell? Is that how you view him? Better believe in Jesus, just in case. 
Or are you entranced by him, fascinated by him, in love with him? What is Jesus to you? Are you totally sold on him? See, this is how his kingdom comes into your life. A great discovery which gives rise to an overwhelming desire which calls for a radical decision. That's the third observation. Have you reached that point yet? Have you made that decision to sell all and follow Jesus? Both these men uh, make a decision which changes the whole course of their lives. You can't, you can't say that you're a follower of Jesus and still be the same person as you were before you met him. And you notice they made this decision willingly, not reluctantly. Gladly, not grudgingly. Do you see that there in verse 44? See what it says? In his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. The, the Christian life is a, is a, is a joy-filled life. O often it's, uh, it's caricatured as, as pie in the sky when you die. Karl Marx called it the opiate of the masses. In other words, it, it's, it makes people willing to put up with misery here because uh, there's pie in the sky when you die, yes, but there's steak on the plate while you wait as well, isn't there? <laughs> when Jesus is king of our lives, we, <clears throat> we have a foretaste of the life that is to come. We, we get to taste it here and now. Glory begun below, as the hymn writer says. Celestial fruit on earthly ground. That's the Christian's experience, isn't it? It was said of the, the Puritan preacher Richard Sibbs that heaven was in him before he was ever in heaven. The Christian life is a, is a joy-filled life which, which begs the question, why are there so many miserable Christians around? Why are we such a joyless lot sometimes? You see, often we, we, we seem to be no different from our, our pagan neighbors. We're just as discontent as they are. And we grumble about the same things that they do. We're, we complain about our circumstances and our general lot in life. Why? Well, the simple answer, my friends, is that we've forgotten the secret of the kingdom, haven't we? You know, ha having sold everything to buy this most precious pearl in the world, we pop it in a drawer and forget about it, don't we? We take our eyes off Jesus and, and become preoccupied instead with our earthly circumstances. So we we struggle and strive for trinkets and trivia rather than for the treasure that is in Christ. Isn't that so? Turn your eyes towards Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. They made this decision, but it wasn't grudgingly. It was joyfully that they made this decision. And, and, and there's an urgency about it too, isn't there? As well as a joyfulness, because the world, you see, the world isn't going round and round in circles as many religions and philosophies teach. It's going in a straight line towards a consummation. It's heading for final judgment. You see that here, don't you, in, in Matthew chapter 13, very, very clearly. Notice how these parables are, are arranged. They're not just thrown together haphazardly. They are arranged in a particular way to make this point. You see, these two parables about the worth of, 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 of the kingdom, about the value of, of knowing Jesus and following him, uh, these, two, these two little parables, they're, they're sandwiched between, you notice, the, the wheat and the weeds on the one hand and the dragnet on the other hand. Two, two, two parables about final judgment and eternal separation. And these two little 
little cameo pictures are, are placed in between those two parables. That, 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 that gives to this an urgency and a, and a, serious, doesn't it? a seriousness, doesn't it? You see, judgment for now is delayed. The wheat and the weeds grow together. But at the end of the age, it says, the angels will come and, and separate the evil from the righteous. There's a day of reckoning coming. And, and the real value of, of the gospel lies precisely there. That the real preciousness of, 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 of what Jesus is, is, is offering us in the gospel lies precisely there, you see. So that to come to Jesus and to enter into his king, kingdom is actually to be saved from the wrath that is to come. So that you don't have to go through life in fear of judgment. You don't have to go through life wondering what the final verdict is going to be. Because if you've trusted in Jesus, the verdict's already in, isn't it? Not guilty. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've trusted in him, if you've taken him to be your Lord and Savior, you know what the verdict is going to be on the last day. You don't have to go through life worrying about it. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who've taken refuge in him. I mean, how valuable is that? That's worth everything, isn't it? Imagine you're on the Titanic, and you've probably seen, seen the movie a couple of times. It's on every year, isn't it? Imagine you're on the Titanic with all its you know, wealth and uh, all the, uh, the riches of the Titanic and those people, those, those passengers on board the Titanic. Imagine you're on the Titanic and it's hit the iceberg and it's going down. A life jacket is more valuable to you now than a ton of gold, isn't it? And all those crystal chandeliers and... Isn't that right? Rescue is more important than riches. Do you realize that? The greatest need you have, my friends, if you're not yet a Christian, is to be rescued from the wrath that is to come. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, the hymn says, doesn't it? I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. Imagine you're dangerously ill and, and the doctor tells you, you know, there's a medicine which can cure you, but uh, uh, it's extremely expensive. You probably have to sell your house to get this medicine. Without it, you're going to die, but you probably need to work out whether or not you want to spend so much money on it. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? What do my cars matter now? What does my house matter now? I must have that medicine. These other things which used to be so important to me and used to fill my life, they look pale by comparison to that medicine. They're expendable now. Give me that medicine. Give me Jesus or I die. It's that urgent, my friends. And it's costly too, isn't it? Jesus told his disciples, to count the cost. Henry Drummond says this about the kingdom of heaven, entrance is free, but the annual subscription is all that you got. That's right, isn't it? That's what these parables are, are telling us. Entrance is free. You can't buy your way into the kingdom of heaven. You pay nothing to get in. 
Jesus pays it all. He lived the life that you could not live. He died the death that you deserve to die. He pays it all. You pay nothing to become a Christian, but it's going to cost you everything that you've got. It's all of grace. Yes, it's all of grace, but it's all or nothing. You've got to be totally sold on him, totally committed to him. You can't worship Jesus with a divided heart. You see, that's implied in both these parables. It's true for both these characters. They had to sell everything to get their hands on this treasure. You can't lay hold of, of Jesus when your hands are full of other things. You can't embrace him unless you're willing to let go of everything else you're holding on to. Sinclair Ferguson uh, tells an amusing story about a baptism that he, he witnessed where uh, the baby grabbed hold of his mother's necklace and the pearls bounced all over the floor. And, and she was faced with a choice. Does she drop the baby and go after the pearls? Or does she forget about the pearls and get her baby baptized? She can't simultaneously in that moment hold on to the baby and pick up the pearls. She's got to decide there and then where her priorities lie. Now, don't ask me what happened. I don't know whether she dropped the baby or not. But, but it's, it's, it's a kind of parable, isn't it? It's a kind of metaphor for what it means to be converted. You and I are faced with the same dilemma. What is, what's going to have the priority in my life? Is it Jesus and his kingdom? Seek first the kingdom of God heaven and his righteousness and all the other things well they'll be added to you if you need them when you need them don't worry about those things See, this is what this decision is all about it's, it, we have to reevaluate our whole lives you can't embrace jesus if your arms are full of other things better one hand full of quietness says solomon ecclesiastes than both hands with vexation full with vexation and striving of spirit you have to let go of everything else to lay hold of him. That's why you need to count the cost. Is it worth it? What value do you put on this? To have Jesus as your king. To belong to his kingdom. To be saved from the wrath to come. Moses faced that choice. Age 40, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 11 Age 40, in the prime of life, we're told he decided to follow Jesus. Actually, it says that. He, he, uh, he put his faith in the pre-incarnate Christ, we're told, Hebrews chapter 11. He, he threw in his lot with the disgraced and persecuted people of God. This is what it says. By faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Yes, there's pleasure in sin, but it's only for a season. And yes, there's treasure in Egypt, but it's in Egypt. You can't take it with you. You'll have to leave it all behind. Fading is the worldling's pleasure all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure none but Zion's children know. Let's pray. 
Maybe you're like the merchant. You've been looking for this all your life. And God wants you to know if you seek me with all your hearts, you will find me. Perhaps you're like the laborer in the field, just going about your everyday life. You're not thinking about Jesus. Nothing could be further from your mind. Your mind's on other things. And God says to you, I am found by those who seek me not. Lord, we are so easily addicted to secondary securities and substitute saviors. Popularity, power, possessions. We look to these things rather than to you to give us purpose and meaning in our lives. We're so easily distracted by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. We're double-minded. We have divided loyalties. We limp along miserably through life with one foot in the world and the other foot in your kingdom. Lord, make me single-minded. Give me an undivided heart to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness for Jesus' sake. Amen.